Well, good morning. Uh, so this is not the kind of lesson that I really know how to organize a PowerPoint to. Um, so there won't be a PowerPoint for it. Um, this is a lesson that is has a lot of emotional momentum with it. Um, so you may have to bear with me a good deal uh, working through these things. Um, Sometimes with a local church, there are uh, very personal things that are going on in a group that need to be discussed at assemblies. 1 Corinthians 5.4 from the reading says that the things that need to be done in terms of dealing with the sinning brother in Corinth, they were to take care of this at an assembly. Um, and so again, there's, just, there's times at assemblies where um, you visit and Maybe you hope for something more encouraging to be talked about, and it just happens that the local church is taking care of some very heartbreaking situations. Um, Johnny, the younger brother that we announced this morning we're withdrawing our fellowship from, is a particularly heartbreaking situation. Um, since I moved here, Johnny has been a very close friend of mine. We've had many Bible studies, many good interactions. Um, it's been emotionally exhausting trying to, to reach him, have conversations. And we're not here because of any lack of diligence on the part of the Bates and others who deeply, deeply love Johnny and care about where he is with the Lord. And since this can be so jarring, um, it just seems necessary to talk about what we are doing and, and why. Um, I think this is something that can be in a local church's work, it's, it's so heartbreaking and uncomfortable, it's very easy to neglect it altogether. Um, and so I think when we try to do these things, there's so much opportunity for confusion or strife. Um, so I, again, I just think there's a need for teaching on the subject of uh, a church's process of trying to reach a brother or sister in Christ. And when that is not being responded to, what do you do? Ecclesiastes 3, verses 4 through 6. Um, this lesson is going to be similar in a lot of ways. There are some brethren that fell away from the Lord last year, and um, near the end of the year I gave a lesson on a similar, similar note. So this lesson will reflect that one in, in a lot of ways. But I mentioned then and again in Ecclesiastes 3, verses 4 through 6, there's a time to weep, there's a time to laugh, there's a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to embrace, and a time to shun embracing, a time to search, and a time to give up is lost. Um, wisdom sees beauty in each thing in its own time, and there are certain things in our lives or in our work together, in our faith together, there are certain things that are heartbreaking to do or involve ourselves in. There's challenging aspects of our work together and although these things are not not fun and they're not encouraging in a normal sense we may think of there's there is a beauty to God's plan and a goodness in following his will and a glory in being being willing to follow God's ways even when it breaks our hearts to do it um, I want to start this lesson like I started the one on a similar note last year, talking about what we're not doing 
Um, there's a lot of brethren who are here now who were not here then. And so I think it's very important to understand what we are not doing um, as we talk about these things. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14 In serving the needs of brethren in different situations, there's a lot of wisdom um, interacting with brethren to figure out where somebody is and and what they need. And there's a lot of opportunity for misunderstanding. And so in serving brethren who are struggling, there's just a great need for diligence, mercy, compassion. But we'll talk more about that as we read through this. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. And again, this is what we're not talking about. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So the first thing that we're not talking about is we're not talking about someone who's weak. This might be somebody who is a new Christian, or maybe they're being stretched very thin, they're very busy, And what they need is they need more hands helping. They need people maybe helping with a great need in their life. Maybe they need emotional help. Maybe they need teaching. But what they need is just somebody to get involved or multiple brethren to get involved to really help them to have endurance and understanding and wisdom. So that's that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about somebody who is faint-hearted. This might be somebody who is dealing with a great tragedy in their life or unexpected heavy circumstances, um, suffering great losses that are heavy emotionally to bear, um, things that happen to someone that they did not anticipate and they just are overwhelmed. And someone in that situation, you know, they may be in a situation where you may not see them at an assembly and they need someone just to go out to them and talk with them and figure out where they are. You know, so this is not assuming that because, well, we don't see anyone, so maybe, well, you just assume maybe they've turned their back on the Lord. That's, that's not it. Um, you know, people need to be reached. They need to be diligently considered. And if somebody is faint-hearted, then they need encouragement, but that's, that's not what we're talking about. And we're not necessarily even talking about the unruly who need to be admonished. What's maybe where a situation like this definitely begins is you have somebody who they're departing from the Lord and maybe there's something pretty clear in their life that is causing a a rift in their relationship with God and they need to be admonished or corrected. That needs to be pointed out. But that's also not what we're talking about. Um, We're talking about something, a situation that has gone far beyond that. And words have proven to be entirely ineffective as it is now. And you notice at the end of verse 14, we're encouraged to be patient with everyone. In the process of being patient, it's much more emotionally taxing because you're trying to give as much benefit of a doubt as you can extend. And you put yourself in a position where people have a lot more liberty to hide. And so things can be much more painful.
but there is always a point if brethren are doing their job of loving and being diligent. What I said in the last sermon when we talked about this before, I think is very true. As you're extending the benefit of a doubt, as you're trying to exhaust every option, if you're weak, I'll help you. If you're faint-hearted and overwhelmed, I'll encourage you. But there is always a point where the will becomes clear and where it becomes clear that what's happening is it's not someone who's weak, it's not someone who's faint-hearted. It may have started those ways. And it's not someone who's just unruly, who just needs to be talked to and loved. But it's someone who has decided they do not want to serve the Lord or be with his people anymore. And there is always a point in diligence and patience where the will becomes clear. So what are, what are we talking about? What kind of situations um, are we talking about? Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We see what we are talking about instructed in a few different places, and we'll briefly look at those places. But 2 Thessalonians 3 is very close by. It might just be a turn of your page. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 14 and 15. It reads, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him, so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So how does this, how does this happen? And I think in the context, you know, 2 Thessalonians gives some pretty specific instructions, especially about working and being diligent, not just sitting around and excusing yourself from, from working for a living. Um, but in verse 14, if someone is not going to obey what God instructs, this isn't just the letter gets read publicly at an assembly and you kind of look at someone where you're like, mm, it's talking about that person. And then you say, we gotta, we got to separate ourselves, right? Now this is the letters read and if someone seems to be struggling with this, again, like 1 Thessalonians 5, you try to talk with them, you try to help them, try to help them see the importance of what God says. But again, there's a point where in verse 14, if somebody is refusing to obey what God says, the, the point of their will and where they stand through diligence will become clear. Look at Romans 16. So 2 Thessalonians 3 is one who refuses to obey God's instruction when worked with, when admonished, when encouraged. Look at Romans 16. Romans 16, verses 17 through 18. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So if somebody is causing division, and again, I don't think this is, you know, they're, you know, causing division, and you just outright, you know, say, you know, we're separating from you. 
But again, this is someone where if they're causing divisions, they're not responding to correction, they're not going to listen to the brethren, they're not going to stop what they're doing, then what are you to do in verse 17? You're to turn away from them. So if somebody is incessantly causing division in a local church, the local church is not to tolerate those things, but we are to mark that, we are to turn away from that. Uh, turn to Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18. And as, as you're turning there, I've met brethren who fit into all of these categories, not just the categories in 1 Thessalonians 5, but what we saw in 2 Thessalonians, what we see in Romans 16, what we see in Matthew 18. And so it's important that as a local church, we understand that in our work together, there are hard situations that require an investment in our relationships so that there's this godly sense of appropriate accountability and encouragement to truly, truly be serving God. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, and that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So what are we, what are we talking about here? So in verse 15, some of your translations may say, if your brother sins against you, so this would be if, you're, if you notice sin in the life of a brother, there's been some kind of wrong that's been committed that would be sin, and this person has been approached one-on-one -on -one in private and they don't listen, they don't repent, they're not convicted, they don't want to deal with it. Well, then in verse 16, what do you do? Take one or two more with you and if they won't listen to the one or two more that went to have a conversation about that, then what do you do? And in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And so two Sundays ago, we told the church about how things have been progressing, the circumstances going beyond verse 15 and verse 16. And many brethren have reached out trying to encourage and uh, exhort Johnny to think about where he is. And if the person won't listen to the church, then what are we to do? So at the end of verse 17 when it says, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. I don't think it's the idea that, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about this in 1 Corinthians 5. It's, it's not this idea of, of shunning necessarily, but it's the idea of you need to recognize very clearly that this person is separated from God, that this is someone who's lost, and that your relationship with this person now, it has changed. It has gone from having fellowship together as brethren in Christ to now there's an acknowledgement that fellowship is now gone. And the center of that relationship is restoring that fellowship that has now been lost, right? Turn to 1 Corinthians 5. This is the last section we'll go to and we'll, we'll pause on 1 Corinthians 5. But again, what are we talking about here? 1 Corinthians 5. So we read this in the scripture reading. But in verses 9 through 13, especially verse 10, it says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. 
I did not mean at all, or I did not at all mean with, with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So again, you have this circumstance in verse uh, 9 through 11 where the Corinthian church was tolerating brethren who were living in sin and really not treating that the way that they were being instructed. Um, So in verse 11, if somebody is choosing to live an immoral life and choose to live in sexual immorality or they're choosing covetousness and because of greed are turning their back on the Lord, or idolatry, or a reviler, a drunkard, or swindler. I want you to think about these things. How do you know if somebody is an idolater? Is it through presumption? Is it by hastily making an accusation? Idolatry is one of those more subtle sins, right? We don't serve like an object that we're erecting in our houses, I think, commonly. But again, there are signs where somebody is choosing to serve money, or to serve the world and is progressively letting godly priorities be choked more and more out of their life to the point when at some point everything that God would desire for a person is gone out of their lives and is no longer a priority. And again, through diligence, the will becomes clear. So that's what we're talking about is We are talking about a situation where there has been an exhausted effort and we are at a place where in 1 Corinthians 5, um, the church needs to take action. Um, So I want to talk just briefly about 1 Corinthians 5 and, and then I want to spend just a little bit of time at the end of the lesson reflecting on some principles that I think can help us understand how did we get here, right? So in 1 Corinthians 5, there's two things here. There's the role of the congregation, and then there's the role of the individual. So in verses 1 through 5, we see the congregational role. So you notice in verses 1 through 5, he says again, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I and my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So there's the congregational action. That as a church, we need to mark and clearly disassociate from someone who is rebelling against the Lord and refusing to repent and choosing to live live in sin instead of choosing the Lord. And then in verse 6 through 9, we'll reflect back on why these things are being done, but 6 through 9 is the individual responsibility. It says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, for just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, 
Let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the malice of bread and sincerity and truth. Um, I'm sorry, through verse 11 is the individual where he says, not even to eat with such a one because of needing to um, clean out the old leaven in 6 through 9. So the individual responsibility is because of needing to have clarity and unity in our work together as a local church and not being able to tolerate the decision to belligerently turn away from the Lord, a congregation has a work to do. But then as a congregation does that work, there is an individual responsibility. And so as hard as it is with Johnny, and it's, it's not meant to be convenient or easy, but again, there can't be the same kind of social relationship that many of us have and have had with Johnny, not even to eat with such a one. But why are we doing this? Look back at verse 4 and 5. I think it's critical to note that everything involved in this process is for the purpose of restoration. So you notice in verse 5, why is someone being delivered over to Satan that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus? So I know this is very heartbreaking, right? But do you or I know how to restore someone to God better than God himself? And because we don't, we have to depend on what God says, that if God says that there is a line that needs to be drawn that we cannot cross with a person, and if he says this is where your role in some ways ends and my role in working with that person providentially begins, we have to trust that as this person is being delivered over to Satan, that God will do his work to deliver and restore that person, right? And that's the confidence in this. Is This is not just to, again, separate ourselves and say, we're done with you. But it's because here's what God says is in the best interest of the sinner to make it as clear as possible to them. If you are not going to listen to what the Bible says or the words of your brethren, then our last-ditch effort is maybe the loss of relationship will do something to your heart to make it more open to God being able to reach in and convict your heart to change, right? So in verse 5, it's all that salvation could ultimately be accomplished in restoration. One more thing about that in verse 5. I know the language, again, seems very harsh. Is there ever a time when the best thing that can happen to a person, the best thing is that they hit rock bottom? I think a lot of us can relate to this, right? Many of us in this room have found the Lord and been convicted of our sins because we hit that rock bottom. And again, as heartbreaking as it is, a person can put themselves in a situation where God says that person may just need to hit rock bottom and realize that their decisions that they're making, the the shallow joy and satisfaction they think they're getting out of life with their decisions they may need to lose that to understand the consequences of their decisions. But then there's a congregational reason that this all needs to happen as well. So this, this is verses 6 through, through 8, the why. So usually what happens in this process, you know, in Matthew 18, we're to continue through trying to reach someone no matter what they're doing with the local church and they're assembling with the church, their, their spiritual condition and connection to the group, Jesus does not exempt us from following through on that 
when they try to hide away and no longer assemble. The reason I say it is verses 6 through 8, when he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. What happens in a household? And I know that a lot of parents struggle with this. But what happens in a, in a household if you state boundaries, you communicate consequences, and you never follow through? You say, this is what's going to happen. If you do this, they do it, and you're like, wish you wouldn't, and you let them get away with it. What happens to the attitude in the children? Or how about a work environment? When I was working in management at UPS, oftentimes I would take over in environments where the previous management did not follow through on consequences at all. They would make threats, but they would never do the work of actually doing the paperwork, going behind the scenes, having conversations, coming back, because it's just, it's a lot of work, right? So when people understand in a, even a work environment that these are the consequences, and if you don't follow through, or if you don't respond to a warning, here's what's going to happen. If an employee finds out, well, that's not going to be followed through on. What happens to that entire work environment? It's a complete chaotic loss of respect for the authority of management. So what a group needs to do in verse 6 and verse 7, we have to realize that if, if we just let people fade out and just slowly disappear and, well, what happened to bro brother so-and-so? I don't know. I, I didn't see him. If there's no sense of conclusiveness is we've reached this person. We have followed through with this person. There is a way that that is going to begin to affect the group. I want you to think about this too, that usually, and I rarely find this not to be the case, when somebody drifts from the Lord and, is, and you're, you're trying to extend patience, it is a process that is paved with excuses and justifications. And so what happens if people are buying into that and the person's making continuous excuses along the way and you never come to the conclusion that, yeah, they were drifting from the Lord and those excuses they were making were just excuses and there was something deeper going on that they were hiding. Again, that affects the group. So as a congregation, we have a responsibility to have a sense of clarity and that, that accountability is, again, a good and beautiful part of the work of a local church. It gives us a sense of safety when we are diligently striving to follow through on these things. If you remember in the book of Acts, you remember Ananias and Sapphira? When they lied to the Holy Spirit, they sold their property, gave a portion of it, said they gave all of it. They were struck dead for that. And again, it seems so severe, but that's something that God did himself very directly. And do you remember what happened after that? So that the congregation feared and the word of the Lord spread even more rapidly. So even again, the fear of recognizing we are not going to tolerate when the Lord is abandoned here. Even if all that comes out of that is a sense of communal fear, that we really do need to take sin very seriously and the deception of sin that begins with excuses and justifications, we just need to examine ourselves and not end up there. If even that is the result then God be praised. So how do we get here? I want to reflect on that for, for just a moment. Turn back to Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Just some quick reflections that I think to encourage and to give warning 
Matthew chapter 7, 24 through 27. How did we get here? How does a person get in this position? So often when someone is in this position, it's not because they don't know the truth. It's not because they haven't been taught. It's not because they haven't listened to sermon after sermon or had personal Bible studies or gone to other Bible studies. And so, so often it's, it's not a lack of knowing what's right. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. What made the difference between these two foundations? Both of them were building a house. So there was work done on both of these circumstances. And I'm sure for the person who even built his house on the sand, that was still a great deal of work they did to construct their house on top of the sand. But the difference is it's somebody who either hears and they act on it, especially, he says, these words of mine. You know, think about the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to say something that I think I can say definitively. That if somebody is acting on the Sermon on the Mount, they will never fall away. Because these words, if a person acts on them, they join both the need to know the truth and follow it in your mind, but it also builds a sense of genuine attachment to the Lord in the heart. Because the Sermon on the Mount is not just regulating our behavior. It's not just getting us to mechanically do some things. But it is impossible to to apply the instructions of the Sermon on the Mount unless your heart, your will, and your mind are all being attached to the Lord. And so when Jesus is instructing the Sermon on the Mount and he says, these words, if you don't do them, you may build a house. But when things get really challenging, when your heart is really tested, don't be surprised if everything you've been trying to build collapses down completely. We need to build a true foundation. We need to be a people who are diligently striving to not just know the Lord and agree with truth in our minds, but we need to recognize the importance of having a heart that clings to the Lord and genuinely loves him. Look at 2 Corinthians 6, and this takes us to the next reflection I want to make. In 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 6, 11 through 15. 2 Corinthians 6, 11 through 15. So the, this affects our heart and our desires, and such an important thing in our relationship with God is honesty with each other. Having transparent conversations and being willing, if there's sin in my life, humility sees that God offers forgiveness and I can confess that and repent of it. But 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. So stop there for a minute. There were issues in the Corinthian church you get the impression as Paul gives encouragement and even praises aspects of repentance in the church, there are very serious 
problems still lingering as Paul wrote this letter that he expresses intense concern that things may not even be quite as good as he's hoping they will be. And he can see that he is striving to go out there and put himself on the line for the Corinthians. He's opening his heart to them. But are they doing that for him? They are closing their heart from Paul. And you notice he says in verse 12, he knows what's going on. What's restraining his relationship with the Corinthians is not Paul. Is not Paul not being diligent enough or not being spiritually centered enough? They are restrained in their own affections. Having spiritually centered relationships with brethren, where we are mutually striving to grow and open our hearts to each other, it will put our affections to the test. Johnny has had ample opportunity to examine his desires, to be honest. And so much of the conversations that him and I have had one-on-one have just been me appealing, just be honest. Just talk to me. But if our desire is not for the Lord, it doesn't matter what we know anymore. It doesn't matter what we've agreed with in the past. Truth no longer matters. What matters is where a person's heart is. And that leads us to the final reflection in Proverbs 18, verse 1. The local church is given as a gift to Christians who see their need for one another. They see their weakness. They see how Satan schemes and they see God's love for people, especially his chosen people. And the church is a gift to those who understand their need for those relationships and what that equips them to be able to do and how that equips them to guard their hearts. Proverbs 18, verse 1. If there's a principle from 2 Corinthians 6 that could be embodied in a proverb, it's this. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. When a brother or a sister begins separating themselves, even if there are justifiable reasons at first. You know, maybe they're saying, well, you know, I've got to work and you want to encourage them. Well, you know, it doesn't, it may not be what's most spiritually helpful. And, but then they just continue to be more and more isolated. Talking to them gets harder and harder. You know, a sign that somebody is dying is they become unresponsive. I don't even mean spiritually dying. But, you know, their strength is waning. They can't communicate as well. And it's the same spiritually. When somebody begins separating themselves from their brethren, that's not done in innocence. And again, it's not that you're trying to make presumptions about people, but as you're trying to reach them and as it's obvious that they are trying very actively to create bridges and gaps and obstacles, if we desire the Lord, we desire one another. And when we separate ourselves, when we don't desire close bonds with God's people. When that's not an interest of investment, we quarrel against all sound wisdom. I want to finish with a contrast. Um, Dear friend of mine in Minnesota, um, someone that when I was living in Minnesota was a great encouragement to me. And we would study the Bible together uh, on a weekly basis, we would have very open, transparent conversations with each other. 
Um, one of the best friends I've, I've ever had. Um, again, this was someone that we've stayed in contact. He's just, he's always been an encouragement when I was living in Minnesota. Um, he was just such a special encouragement to me. While all this was kind of reaching a climax with Johnny, he called me, and it was a conversation that I did not expect, and I asked him if I could share in this sermon some things he told me and sent me, and he gave me the green light that it would be okay. But he called me and he said that he was needing to confess sin, and that to the elders of his church he had, or he was sending a letter to the elders of the church. He's married with two kids, um, good job, very busy. And so he was sending a letter to the elders confessing sin. And you know, so what do you think, well, what is he confessing? You know, is it a struggle with pornography that he's been hiding? Is it dishonesty? No, what my friend was so convicted by and was brought to tears over is he felt that he had left his first love. There was no moral sin. It's not pornography. It's nothing morally wrong. He was brought to tears because just in examining himself, he could see that he just wasn't as zealous for the Lord as he had been in the past. He wasn't as diligent in relationships with brethren. He wasn't thinking about the Lord as much as he used to. And so I want to read you some things that he wrote that I think stand in contrast and really help clarify what does a good heart look like. Some things that he wrote. So again, he's writing to the elders. He says, first, will you forgive me? I am so sorry. He said, as my elders, I feel I've not been a good member of the body, nor a sheep easy to keep in line. You've been so patient, so loving in your examples in the faith. Renew my desire. Seeing Jesus and how you lead helps me to repentance. Second, will you pray for me? I have some challenges that wage war against me and I want more than anything to overcome. Satan at times convinces me that God won't forgive me. Please pray on my behalf that God would forgive me of my neglect. I'm unsure how you want to proceed with this information, but at this time I wanted to confess my sin as it has hit me like a ton of bricks. Brethren have encouraged me without fail. My wife has won me without a word, and my children's innocent eyes inspire courage in my heart. Above all, God is worthy. Somehow sin blinded me to all the ways I've fallen short, and I simply became too connected to the world. The world has beat me up, knocked me down, and punished me again and again, and through this I have come to accept God's discipline and reminder that there is nothing for me here in this world. This is not my home. Please let me know what you require of me, and I will do it. I am embarrassed beyond belief, sad, mourning my sin, and just simply broken over this. I await your guidance. That's what a good heart looks like. 
like to spend a moment in prayer praying for Johnny. And then we can stand and sing the invitation song after that.